Northridge family. How are you today? You doing well? Woo! Man, I have now heard them do that song three times. And just about every time, I just get chills. All the hair just stands up on my arm. And I'm like a walking Chia pet, so there's a lot of hair. Aren't you just blessed? I mean, can we just thank Evan and the worship team for just leading us so, so good. Um, it's great to be with you. Uh, my name is David Nasser. If I've never had the honor and privilege of getting to preach to you here at uh, this incredible church, but uh, we are in a series uh, called Out With The Old, In With The New, right? Which is a perfect title and a perfect series as we begin this new year. And uh, I get to kind of plug in right here uh, into this. And then, by the way, I'll be back in two weeks, all right, to, to do another installment of this same series. But uh, to, today, if possible, uh, if you're taking notes, I'd like to take the theme that we, we have, out with the old and in with the new, and make one tiny little change to it uh, as it relates to the passage that we're going to get to study together. And, and so if you're taking notes, write out with the old, in with the new, and then take the word new, all right? And don't put an X over it, but beside it, put the word bold. And, and so the idea there would be that we want to look at this coming year and ask the Lord to make this a year where we're bolder than we've ever been, that this would be the year where we would say, out with the old, in with the bold, now, I know that every introvert in the room that heard me say that just got a little, like, scared. You went, oh, my goodness, are you kidding me? Some, some extrovert with a microphone is going to come out here, and he is going to tell me that I need to get loud this year, that I need to get extravagant this year, that I need to get more visible this year, because a lot of times we define that idea, that word boldness as loudness, but, but rest if you're an introvert in knowing that what we're not talking about in this moment is that this would be the year that you would be the loudest in your faith, but that this would be the year where you would be not loud, but love like never before. The biblical definition of boldness is very different than this world's definition of boldness a lot of times. When we think about boldness in, in, in this world, we think about charisma and we think about charm and we think about all these things that, like those of you that are into the Enneagram, I'm not that much to tell me that, that, that the threes and the sevens are, but it might surprise you to know that the Apostle Paul was actually an introvert. It might surprise you to know that Jesus was actually probably an introvert. And, and they, they look at his life and, and see that so many times when he had the opportunity, he would, he would get away from the crowd and exclude from the crowd. And, and he was constantly looking for so much that an introvert would look for. And so if you're an introvert today, don't be scared, all right? We're not calling you to, to not be you. Comfortable in your own design that God has made, what does it look like for you to be biblically bold like never before. And so before we move forward there, and we're going to look at probably one of the boldest statements that Jesus ever made in all of scripture, let's just define boldness for us so that we have that foundation. Boldness in the Christian life is this. It's compassion plus confidence equaling boldness. 
So if compassion plus confidence equals boldness, and Jesus is our greatest model of boldness, what we're asking you this week, this year to consider is that, hey, I'm already compassionate, but I want to be more compassionate than I've ever been. I'm already confident in the, in the power and the message of the gospel, but I want to be more, more you know, emboldened in that than I've ever been. And so the intersection where your confidence and your compassion intersect, that's where you'll find our boldness. That's boldness. And to kind of study out of Scripture this idea of boldness for us this morning, uh, I want to look at one of the boldest statements in all of Scripture. Now, there's 700,000, you know, sorry, there's uh, 80, I wrote it down a minute ago, it's pretty interesting. There are 800,000 words in the Bible and 71,000 verses roughly in the Bible. And, and, and what I want us to look at is, is what a lot of people call the Bible in a nutshell, John 6, 35. And, and what's interesting is that in the South, uh, where I'm from, we call what we're about to read, not just bold, but fighting words, y'all. <laughs> and this is about as controversial as it gets. It's about as crystal clear as it gets. And it is about as bold as it gets in that Jesus makes a claim about himself in John 6, 35, that I know will not be received in, in this context here at Northridge where Pastor Brad faithfully every Sunday, year after year after year, has preached the same truth, but, but that we live in a world that's not receiving what I'm about to say to you and read out of scripture as uh, in a posture of hospitality, as, you know, hospitality, but in a posture of hostility because honestly, it's just offensive to people when you begin to tell them what we're about to read you. What I mean when I say it's fighting words is that um, um, Charles Spurgeon, who was a theologian and a pastor from London uh, about 80 years ago, um, says these are bloody words because Jesus said statements like we're about to read and it literally cost him his blood upon a cross because he left no wiggle room and made it as clear as possible. You know, there are 136,000 people this year that will be the martyrs of our faith. 136,000 people who at the end of a spear or as the persecuted church will find themselves not just in prison, but it will cost them their life. So it's not just historical where it costs Jesus blood. There are people that will, they will today tell you that they are the persecuted brothers and sisters, sons and daughters of God, family members, for those of us who are believers, who would tell you that the reason that they're in so much hot water or the reason that they were even maybe murdered because of their faith is because they would not back down for the statement that we're about to read. And now that I have your attention, now that you're going, well, what is this verse? Uh, let me just read it for us. This is John 6, 35. Jesus says, I am. Words reserved for only God himself to utter. So people heard him 2,000 years ago make the statement that he makes. Just know that he didn't have to even finish the sentence. He, he was like, I am. And people gasped and said, hey, this Jewish carpenter must think he's God. Only God gets to say, I am, the great I am. And he just uttered the, the, the words that are only reserved for God to say. And who does he think he is? And, and Jesus would say, I, I think I am the great I am. But then he says, I am, you ready for this? The bread of life. 
I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Now, I know you're hearing that, and you're like, wow, nobody got up to leave. This doesn't seem so offensive. And that's because we're predominantly Christians in this environment right here, and we believe that with confidence to be true. Anybody believe with confidence that Jesus is the bread of life? That when he said that 2,000 years ago, it's just as true today? But can I just say, have you ever talk, taken the time to think through that? What he's saying is ultimately, this is why it's the Bible in a nutshell, what he's saying is ultimately that I am the only one that will satisfy the hunger of your soul. I am the only savior of the world. I'm the only sustainer of the world. I'm the only supply of the world. I am the great I am. And if you have me, you have the one thing that matters most. I am, you ready for this? Everything. Jesus is saying, I am literally everything. And if you have me, you have everything. If you don't have me, you don't have everything. And anything you try to put in my place will leave you unsatisfied, will leave you not sad, uh, fully, you know, so you look at a place of completeness. What Jesus is saying is, I am everything. He's not just saying, hey, I'm the bread of life and quit drinking all this poison or quit eating all this stuff that looks like bread, but it's not bread or, or, or is bad for you. Like, it's obvious that when Jesus is saying, come take of me, come to the banquet, right? And, 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 and allow me to be your substance. It's one thing, very black and white, very easy to understand that Jesus would make that claim about bad things, poisonous things, right? Like, certainly, I don't know, we could sex, drugs, and rock and roll this moment and say, they're just things that are horrible, and Jesus is saying, like, when you go to that, it's going to poison you, but he's not just saying this about bad things. He's not just saying this about sin we commit. He's actually saying it about good things as well. I'm married. I've been married over 30 years. And uh, anybody here married? We, we, wave at me, married people. Cool. Um, how long? Right here in the front row. Uh, how, by the way, I've asked this now three times. So Saturday night, the answer was three months. Uh, earlier service, the answer was 14 years. Y'all been married how long? A year and a half. Come on, y'all. Let's give it up for them. That's amazing. A year and a half. Um, last night in the Saturday night service, we literally had a couple that was married over 60 years. That's awesome. That is awesome. They look so young. I was like, did y'all get married when you were like two? What's going on here? They're just an amazing couple. But, um, but a year and a half in, and I'm 30 years in, uh, hopefully you're going to be my amen corner right here on the front row when I tell you that I love my wife. You love your wife? Good answer. Amen. I love my wife. I adore my wife. But can I just tell you this? I don't worship my wife. And the reason I don't worship my wife is because it's a gift that God has given me my bride. Amen, brother? All right? But here's what I don't want to do. I don't want to elevate her into a place that God never designed for her to be. So it's a good thing that you're married. It's a good thing that you have one another. It's a good thing that God's kind of like walked you down the aisle and made you one. But here's the thing. She can't complete you. I love my wife. My wife makes a wonderful wife, but she makes a horrible God. And what Jesus is pushing up against is not just the bad stuff in this world. He's pushing up even to, towards the, the good stuff in this world. He's saying, look, your wife can't be your object of worship. He, I love my kids. Anybody here got kids? 
I love my kids. I love my son, Rudy. We adopted him from Guatemala when he was seven. And uh, as a former orphan, can I just tell you, every day now he wakes up. And you know what he does for a living? He works in an organization where he helps orphans find Christian families to belong to. I'm so proud of him. The kid's a baller. He's fun. He's amazing. He just gave me grandbabies, so even amped up more why I love him. I love my son. I love my daughter. The other day I was reading her um, college essay that she's sending to Harvard and Yale. She's trying to get into law school over there. She's academic. She's brilliant. I read the essay. I literally turned the essay off on my phone, called her and said, honey, I'm crying reading this essay. I cannot. You are by far the smartest person I've ever met. You're amazing. So I'm just telling you all that to say, I love my daughter. I love my son. But can I just tell you this? They will let me down if I make them the bread of my life. As a matter of fact, how unfair would it be if I elevate them into a position that they're not designed to satisfy and then they let me down, I let them down. So what I'm telling you is this, I love my job, I love my wife, I love my kids, I love my friends. They all make great roles in my life and they're blessings from God, but I can turn them into a curse when I let them be the bread of my life. And so once we figure that out, once we figure that out about our wives, then we realize, oh, she's not the object of my worship. She is one more person God's brought in my life to enhance my worship. She is one more person who's helped me. That's why the, the ultimate purpose of my job, the ultimate purpose of my parenting, the ultimate purpose of my marriage, the ultimate purpose of everything I do is so that I can grow in making Jesus my everything. Once we figure that out, then all of a sudden everything else makes sense. And that's what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, if I'm your everything, then you got what you need. But if you don't have me, it doesn't matter what else you try to, to put in that seat. It's going to leave you lacking. But what's interesting about that statement, and you don't get more bold than that statement. And by the way, the, the, another part of that statement that's so bold is the, the, <laughs> T-H-E, the, the part of that statement. Because a lot of times people don't mind that Jesus would claim to be, you know, bread, meaning for the soul, substance for the soul, satisfaction for the soul, as long as he's a bread and not the bread, right? Like, so, if, you know, there, that's why it's so offensive. That's why it's so bold. That's why it's so daring. Like, Jesus has the audacity to claim to be the only bread that satisfies I mean, you know, you can look at it if you, while we're on the bread track and go, you know, there's all kinds of ways to be satisfied as far as religion is concerned. I mean, you can, uh, you know, Islam is there and Judaism is there and Buddhism is there and, and, you know, Mormonism is there. And so, you know, like, I don't know, the bread track here, you know, one is pumpernickel, the other one is sourdough. I mean, just one more kind of bread over here with Jesus, you know, like, what is that supposed to be? And so you can look at it that way, but Jesus comes on the scene and he doesn't go, hey, there's all kinds of bread, pick what kind of bread. No, he goes, I am the bread. And everything else is going to leave you. All the other religions of this world are going to leave you lacking. And so do you realize how amped up that is? How, how absolutely confrontational that feels. There's no other way to label it but to say it is bold. Bold. But what makes the statement so bold isn't the declaration, but it is the way that it's presented. As a matter of fact, that's the text for this morning, John 6, 35. But if you look at the context by which Jesus delivers it, Jesus delivers it the day after he fed 
the multitudes. If you have your Bibles open, because you're old school and you got your like Bibles open, all right, and you go to John 6, 35 that we read, but you back up a little bit, you realize that the day before Jesus made this statement, this bold statement, Jesus put love, compassion on display and served that kind of confidence on the tray of compassion. That's the day, the day before where Jesus fed the multitude. Now, your Bible might say the feeding of the 5,000, but what that is, is that's 5,000 men, and with those men came women and children, and so this is before birth control, so basically think Catholic numbers, y'all, all right? And so we got, most theologians believe minimally about 15,000 people that are on the mountainside by the Sea of Galilee, and Jesus comes into this environment, and when he comes into this environment, if you know the story, because somebody flannel grafted for you when you were a kid in VBS, all right, before we were talking about it this morning, you know that there are 15,000 people there, and basically 14,999 of them have forgotten to bring anything to eat. And the reason I say that is because we know in the story that nobody packed a lunch except one responsible teenager who brought a little bit of fish and a little bit of bread for himself. Let's just call it probably a homeschooler, all right, because they always pack a good lunch, all right? That's a compliment, by the way. And so, so you got this kid, and normally in an environment where somebody would have plenty for themselves, nowhere near enough, in an environment where there's such scarcity, the, the posture would be to like hide and hoard, but instead... This kid is compassionate. And he brings a little bit of fish, a little bit of bread that he has to Jesus. And then the next thing you know, Jesus takes a little bit of fish, a little bit of bread, and he just multiplies it. And it is an all-you-can-eat buffet to the point where there are literally baskets of leftovers. And so let's just pause here and just say that Jesus comes into an environment where there are 15,000 people. I've been there in Israel on the Sea of Galilee where they go, this is probably where Jesus fed the multitude. It is literally like an amphitheater. It's set up like this. I mean, you could, you could stand there if you wanted and get the attention of all 15,000. And what's amazing is the greatest preacher of all time the greatest storyteller of all time, the one with the most confidence and, and, and the one with the most content of all time, right? God of this universe finds 15,000 people and he doesn't go, quick, somebody lead a few songs, you know, and then give me a microphone and let me preach at them. The greatest preacher of all time finds 15,000 people, and check this out, they're hungry and he feeds them. <laughs> they're hungry and he feeds them. The greatest preacher, and I know I'm in the pulpit of one of my favorite preachers, Brad Powell, all right? The greatest communicator of all time walks into a place where normally he'd be preaching, but before he starts preaching, he does that the next day. Before he starts preaching, he finds hungry people, and he goes, they're hungry, let's feed them. Now, we all agree their ultimate need was not physical bread, but it was their immediate need. Their ultimate need was not physical bread. Their ultimate need was spiritual bread. And we get there the next day, but Jesus earns the right to be bold vocally by being bold compassionately. So Jesus finds 15,000 people, they're hungry, and he doesn't say, by the way, go do an inventory and find out who believes in me. If they believe I'm the bread of life, 
they get to eat. If they don't believe I'm the bread of life, if they just think I'm the bread giver, or they just, if they don't, find out who's drank the Kool-Aid. If they're into me, they get to eat. If they're not, no, no. Jesus doesn't go, we're just gonna feed believers. People are hungry, and whether they believe him or not, people are in need, whether they've, they've been responsible or not, whether they're eye-rolling and going, who does this Jewish rabbi even think he is or not? Jesus finds people with an immediate need, and he feeds them. He feeds them. It's not the only place he does that. I mean, basically, if you read your Bible, Jesus eats his way through the New Testament. <laughs> he goes from meal to meal to meal. And after he meets their immediate need, the next day, the next day, the people that he fed the next day, the day before wake up, they're hungry. They come looking for the one who, who met their immediate need the day before, and they literally initiate the conversation with him. They come around, and that's when we run into the bold statement. Listen to me. The statement that he makes is not contradicted, but complemented by the, the love that he displayed the day before. A friend of mine calls it, he wrapped the gospel in a fish sandwich. <laughs> and it wasn't just enough to meet the need. The next day, he speaks redemptive truth, bold truth into their life. But the way that he does it is the one-two punch. It's on display. People ask me sometimes uh, when I took the bold statements of the people that had been witnessing to me. Seriously, I grew up uh, a Muslim, and when I was 18 years old, these people started witnessing to me, and, and when I say witnessing to me, I wasn't going to their church. They were coming to my house. For eight Monday nights in a row, these Christians showed up at my house, and on Monday nights, they would share the gospel with me, and can I just tell you, they were making bold statements every time they came to my house. They'd say stuff like, God so loves you, David, that he gave his one and only son. If you believe in him, you will not perish, but you'll have eternal life. Man, that is a bold thing to say to somebody. And then they would say other things that were like bold as in like aggressively personal. They'd be like, you're a sinner, David, in need of a mighty savior. And you cannot save yourself and everything in your life that you have has broken you down. You need Christ in your life. They would come into my house and they would, they would say these things like, you know, Jesus is the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but by him. They'd come to my house and have bracelets with beads on them, all taking me down the Roman road. And they would... They as they were taking me down the Roman road, it was obvious that what they were telling me was, I can't, but God did. And they would be bold. They would be boldly demoting for me and boldly promoting for Christ. But people always ask me, they go, when did you take Christianity seriously? It wasn't the eight Monday nights that they were coming and saying some incredibly loud, as in bold things about God as they would read their Bible. It wasn't even when they would drag me to their church. They had a beautiful church. It was a multi-million dollar facility. It had marble on the walls, and it had uh, this like multi-million dollar organ, and the preacher was an incredible communicator. The, the, the cantata and the choir was impressive. But I, I, I'm telling you, like all that was good and everything, but what really, really blew me away was not all that. It was not the theological discussions we had. People ask me, when did you take Christianity seriously? But I'm, I'm just telling you, it wasn't their confidence. It was this one moment of compassion that just got me sideways. One night after church, they dragged me to church, you know, and one night after church, we go and eat. We ate at this, uh, I think it was called a Shoney's back then, you know, and I remember we go to the Shoney's and there's like seven of us and they pick me up. So like they, they, they go, hey, let's go eat afterwards. And, and, um, 
we're sitting there at this restaurant, and for like two hours, we're just having this long discussion. They're using sugar packets and sweet low packets to explain the gospel to me. And they're telling me all these things, and, and they're making all these statements, and, and, and we get done with dinner, and, and we get up and we leave, and we go and we get in this Honda Accord. The guy that was witnessing to me, a guy named Larry, had this Honda Accord, but the problem was there was like seven of us in this Honda Accord. You've seen like the clown car where all these clowns like get out of a tiny car. This was the opposite. We're all piling in like sardines in this, in this Honda Accord, and I was in the back seat, and so I remember I'm kind of on top of some people's laps, you know, like I'm kind of stuffed like, a, you know, in the back, and, and we've gotten done with dinner, we're in the car, we're backing out, and as the guy driving is backing out of the parking spot in the parking lot of the Shoney's, all of a sudden, um, the waitress that had served us, she runs out to the parking lot, and she starts knocking really loud with her, with her, with her thumbs, uh, her knuckles, uh, the, at the window, that's right by my face in the back seat. And so the guy driving stops the car and he looks, you know, and, and notices. And then instead of rolling down his window, he rolls down like the window that's right by my face and he rolls it down. And so she gets her face like right close. Like I was like this close to her face and I'm kind of leaned in and, and she yells in the car. She sees that we're stuck in there. and She goes, y'all need to get out of the car. And, and Larry, the guy driving, goes, what do you mean? He goes, well, I just noticed you, 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 there are too many of you in the car for you to have room to check your pockets properly. She goes, you need to get out of the car so you can check your pockets. And she's got this wad of cash in her hand. And she goes, you way overpaid. She goes, um, somebody accidentally, that's why I want you to check your pockets. Somebody accidentally gave me a $100 bill here. And you probably thought it was a 10 or a 20. You didn't check properly. So I need you to check your pockets. Somebody just, I mean, there's weight. A bill is like, $60. You've left almost $200 here. She goes, get out of the car, check your pockets. And while she's saying this, Larry, the guy driving who had been witnessing to me, he looks at her and he goes, that wasn't a mistake. And then he said her name. And I just remember thinking, that's crazy that he didn't see her as a waitress. He saw her as an individual, as a human being, as a person. He said her name. And then he goes, hey, listen, that wasn't a mistake. He said, when we first got here a couple of hours ago, you mentioned, as we were waiting for everybody else to get there, get here, you, you know, kind of walk in, you mentioned to me, he goes, that, uh, that this is Christmas time and you're saving, you're doing like an extra shift tonight because you're trying to save a few dollars to help your kids for a better Christmas morning and provide for them. And so I mentioned that to everybody. And honestly, we just, we emptied our pockets. He goes, we just kind of put everything that we had in there. And if we'd have had more, we'd have left more. And so this lady's looking, and I'm just like kind of leaned in. I look at her, and she just starts crying, y'all. She just starts crying, and, and she goes, you did this on purpose? And then he looks at her, and he goes, well, don't worry. We'll be back next week. And as soon as he goes, we'll be back next week, she just screamed. She goes, well, make sure you get my table. <laughs> don't you ask for somebody else. And they said a few more nice things to her, and She's just standing there, and the window got rolled back up, and they backed out, and we start driving away, and as we're driving away, it's just kind of eerily silent in the car, and I, and I just remember, I looked in the rearview mirror, and, and as I could see, she's standing there, and she's traumatized by the kindness, the weirdness of it all, that a bunch of teenagers would bless her in that way. Meet her in a moment like that and, and, and treat her like that. And I'm in the car and it's quiet in the car. And, and all of a sudden, I heard somebody in the car going, 
And I'm like, I'm telling myself, don't, don't cry, don't cry, don't, don't let him in, don't let him in. And then all of a sudden, I start crying, and we're all in the car, and it's just this, it's just a car full of people going, you know, and, and people ask me, they go, when did you take your faith seriously? I took Christianity seriously, where for two hours, somebody showed me the theology of grace, God's undeserving favor, God's unmerited favor, and then they, they complimented the theology of grace, undeserving love, with the way they treated this lady, gracious, graceful. I remember being in the car and just all of a sudden it dawned on me, she was actually not a good waitress. <laughs> I mean, seriously, like my drink never got filled right. I mean, our food order, was, I think, was off a little bit. Somebody asked for no fries and they got fries and they were not good. I just remember, but listen, they didn't give her the money like that because she was amazing. It wasn't based on her performance. It was based on compassion, her being a person. And all of a sudden, grace wasn't just a theology. Grace became something that I was like, oh, they're treating her not as she deserves, but as God would want them to treat her. Graceful, gracious. And can I tell you this? After that, everything they talked to me about, all the confidence they had, everything they talked to me about, about God, I took seriously because I was like, they must mean it. I've seen the evidence of it in the way that they are. Because kindness, beloved, is a superpower. Now, why am I telling you this? I'm telling you this because, listen, two reasons. Number one, you have been given by God people that he's put in your life, in your school, in your neighborhood, in your place at work. You have been given by God an opportunity to be bold in your faith where compassion plus confidence in the message, and then compassion is the method, can be the great tee-up on the way you love someone. You meet their need. You serve them. And then when the opportunity comes, you step into their life, and you share the gospel, and it becomes undeniable. So I don't know if, as I'm speaking, God puts someone in your heart, your mind, like, hey, this isn't just about the, I'm literally thinking about the lady whose cubicle is right next to mine at work, or I'm, I'm literally thinking about the, the family that just moved into our neighborhood. And they need some lawn work, and everybody in the neighborhood has been like prayer requests slash gossiping about how their lawn looks horrible. And, and maybe the way that I can be bold in sharing my faith to them is it begins with me like just grabbing my lawn equipment with my family, and we don't go do it out of pity. We don't go do it out of charity. We go do it out of compassion, and we just show up, and we just start to help him get that lawn right. And if they come out and they go, why do you do this? You don't go, because it's, it's just the talk of them. Like, no, no, you do the opposite. You go, dude, we needed this exercise. This is a favor for us. It's a privilege for us. Or maybe it's somebody who's really hurting as a friend, and in this moment, you just need to step in and serve. Maybe it's, I don't know, a casserole. As a matter of fact, if you're taking notes, forget the compassion plus confidence equals boldness. Here's a better one. Casseroles plus confidence equals boldness. Because <laughs> there's nothing more powerful than a hash brown casserole. <laughs> when someone's coming into a moment where they're just like, I'm just wore out right now in life. And you just show up and you go, Hey, listen, I know what it's like to be wore out. I'm always wore out. <laughs> I know what it's like. I, I, I just made a little too much. 
And he'd be such a favor for me if you would just, like, help me. And I think I need to tweak the recipe. Tell me what stuff needs to be worked. You come into a posture like that, and you know what God does? God begins to disarm people. And all of a sudden, we believe with confidence. How many of you believe with confidence that Jesus is Lord, that he's the only bread? And people are walking around at all the wrong banqueting tables, eating all the stuff that they're trying to find satisfaction in, and it won't bring. How many of you believe that? So we have the confidence, but why not serve it on compassion? The reason you're hearing this sermon is because, uh, and this text, it, we, I was going to preach something else um, a couple weeks ago, is because um, I listen to Brad Powell on rotation. He's one of the pastors who feeds my soul on podcast. And, and the other day, I was listening to him, and I heard him say something, and I was like, I think I misheard him. This is crazy. Uh, I heard him say that, um, that the, the plan was to, in a few weeks from now, make a million meals right? They call them manna, which is bread, manna meals. Make a million meals happen for children in orphanages and children in worship centers, children across the world, in Haiti, in Honduras, and in Ethiopia. And, 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 and when I heard him, I thought, that's insane. Like, I think I heard him wrong. I think he's talking about like the collective of a couple of hundred churches in Detroit and the suburbs are going to get together and do this. But then I went back and listened and I was like, nope. He's like, Northridge family, we're looking for 5,000 of you to give up a few hours on Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and to come in and not, uh, this is a privilege, and to, to worship service by serving kids around the world, and we're going to make these incredible meals. We're going to pay for them, by the way, the meals as a church body, and then we're going to take these things, and we're going we're gonna to create an environment where this ministry that feeds children is going to get to feed them the meal so that when they go, why does somebody in Michigan care about me? The answer can be because you're important to God and you're important to us. And I went back and listened to it and I thought, oh my gosh, she's talking about one church doing that? One church? That's, and I didn't think that's cocky. I didn't think that's audacious. You know what I thought? I thought, that's bold. That's bold. That's a bold check to write to say, you know what? They're children tonight who are going to bed hungry on our watch. And if it breaks the heart of God, it breaks the heart of God's people, his family at Northridge. By the way, you've done it two other times. This is the third time you're doing it. And so what does that look like? It looks like this moment, right? That's why they're, they're, they're asking you to, to text. If you have your phone, get them out just for a second. If, that's why they're asking you to text. And the, the simple thing is you text the word million M-I-L-L-I-O-N, million, uh, to the number 31616. And they're asking you to set up two hours of your time on Thursday, Friday, and Saturday in a few weeks to, to come along and say, I, I, wanna, I, wanna, I get to do this. Not I have to, I get to, I get to serve people. I get to make a manna meal for the glory of God. Kids are going to bed hungry, and, and I, I want to step into the moment. I know, listen, I know. We right now have 3,400 of you that have already signed up. So we're almost there. But look, here's the thing. The 3,400 that signed up, they'd have signed up with or without the sermon, with or without the push. I know some of y'all are listening to this and you're like, uh-huh, they brought in some Iranian dude to try to motivate me. To, I'm not doing I promise you if you go, it'll give you tenfold what you're giving. What better thing than 
Talk about a core memory than to have your kids watch you make sandwiches, make these, make meals. What better thing than to have this memory of me and my wife, we labored together for the glory of God. Me and my wife, we served together. We, we, we made this decision to, if you're not going to do it, you're not going to do it. But I, I just want to say, like, what does that look like? And can I just throw in one more caveat? The reason that they're giving out these cards on your way out is that um, it's also not just an opportunity to serve people in Jesus' name, but to come along and invite your neighbor. These cars are not for you. These cars are for you to go and invite your friends. Invite your, hey, you want to come do this with me Thursday night? I signed up. For because what would it look like for you to invite others who maybe don't even share our faith to come and serve alongside you? And to come and be a part of seeing the beauty of the collective power of people coming together. And so there are people, I'll just be frank and tell you, there are people that you know that would never come to church with you, but they'd come to see the church show up in this place and feed, and they might even serve alongside of you. And I promise you, they'll get to know other people in your community while they're serving for a few hours, and they'd go, these are some crazy Christians, and I just want to be around them, <laughs> because love is a magnet. So I want to ask you to serve, but can, can I get you to bow your heads with me just wherever you are? And I'm about to pray, but I want you to also ask, beyond the million meals opportunity, would you be a part of that as an individual, as a family? But beyond that, I want to ask you, um, can you think about maybe somebody, maybe a family member, a coworker, a classmate, the lady who drops off her kids at the gym class right beside you, and you always like talk a little bit about your kids? the person that God has put into your life. I wanna ask you, like, the person who has built their life on the wrong foundations, would you just pray and just say, God, give me a way to serve them. Give me a way to be bold in the way that I love them. So that, God, it would open up the conversation to be able to share with them with confidence the message of the gospel. Can we stand together? just all over this room, just uh, the balcony in the front row. Let's just stand. And, uh, man, we're just going to sing this and just thank God with confidence in the message of the gospel, but not at the expense of losing what God is saying to us as, an, as a person. Man, Lord Jesus, bring those people to heart. Bring them to mind. Thank you, Jesus, that you are the bread of our life. Give us a chance, God, to serve those who have yet to figure that out by the way that we exemplify it with our life. We pray this in your name. Amen. Let's continue to worship together.